You are listening to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Five elderly care facilities are reporting COVID clusters. They are the Hilo Medical Center Extended Care Facility on the Big Island, and the others on Oahu are Kalakaua Gardens, the Plaza at Pearl City, Aloha Nursing and Rehab, and the Care Center of Honolulu. The state health department has not released the numbers on its dashboard, and we are waiting on responses from those on the list. But this morning, we talked to Kayla E. Lopez, state director for Hawaii ARP, about the latest developments. ARP has been urging facilities to mandate vaccines for their staff. One of the challenges, you know, that ARP has been actively trying to get addressed is the issue of transparency. And from our perspective, we're able to get data, but we've got to wait four weeks or so to get it through the federal government's website to find out how many cases in Hawaii's nursing homes were either through staff or residents. And so even though we know that there's five facilities that had recent cases, there's no way to know, you know, how many people that is in each facility, whether they were staff or residents. So that's a concern around transparency because we believe family members should know and need to know how significant an outbreak is in a particular facility. And what were you able to find out as you folks were digging down into the federal records on the previous outbreaks? Well, one of the things that's clear is that often what happens in nursing homes are somewhat reflective of what's happening in the larger community, right? So Hawaii has one of the highest percentages, in fact, is the highest, in vaccination. So it's at 89% of the nursing home staff and about 90.5% of nursing home residents. So Hawaii is doing very well in that regard. And we know that the staff are very thoughtful and care about uh, making sure they're vaccinated so kupuna aren't exposed. I think the thing that we can see from looking at the numbers is although Hawaii has high percentage of vaccinations, the truth of the matter is what we all do uh, in uh, our activities you know, we still potentially can get the Delta variant and bring it into a facility without knowing. So I think the upside is with so many people in the nursing homes having been vaccinated, let's hope they're able to withstand any exposure. But the point of the matter, Catherine, is even with the high vaccination rate, people still have to take precautions. And so our concern really at this point is that people have to get vaccinated. They have to take that kind of personal responsibility to get vaccinated themselves and then take precautions with regards to masking up and social distancing. So, you know, that's what we can see right now. And our concern is if the outbreaks in the community continue to increase, the potential of something being introduced into the nursing homes increase as well. And this leads us to the uh, concerns that folks have had about this plan, the standards of care that the department has drafted, you know, in the event that our systems just get overwhelmed. I understand that ARP is concerned that there may be some age discrimination. First of all, we appreciate that the governor and the Department of Health are preparing for let's hope something that we don't ever have to use, which is creating the crisis standards of care framework. And it's intended to provide guidance to healthcare professionals in how they need to allocate 
scarce resources should the demand for certain life-saving provisions exceed what's available. And so those guidances are very important. And the fact that the state has updated them is a good thing. Our concern are twofold. One was the challenge and how does one actually, again, from a transparency perspective, Catherine, know what's in the framework, how they've engaged those who are involved or work with seniors. And then specifically the concern we hope will have been revised by the state, but the August 2020 version had age of 65 as a tiebreaker for certain resources. And so what that means is if all things are equal, someone who is older than 65 has a lower priority than someone who is younger than 65 to get those resources. And, you know, the truth of the matter is there's lots of different biases that folks can have. You know, we're all human, and we believe age should not be one of those. And so that's our position. And the federal government, in some of its guidance most recently, so we're hoping the Department of Health is looking at that, has come out and said age should not be a factor. Um, Now, that just came out late August of this year. So we're just really glad that the Department of Health has indicated they're now going to post, my understanding is they're going to potentially post that document on their website. Yes, and uh, I know that there have been questions raised about, uh, you know, releasing uh, hospitals and medical centers when it comes to liability during this crisis. Right. So one of the things that the executive order that the governor issued does is it says uh, to healthcare professionals and facilities, as long as they follow and comply with the crisis standards of care, they are not liable and don't have liability. And, you know, in that sense, we understand those are difficult situations. And again, that's if they follow the guidance. It does not um, release them from liability if there's negligence or those types of things. So that's that's a good thing, and that's what's in the executive order. The concern for us is really more the fact that age is considered a determining factor in providing resources. That was ARP's Kayla E. Lopez. Uh, who we talked to this morning. Uh, We also talked to Larry Geller. He's an advocate for the elderly with Kokua Council, but he said the group had not yet had a chance to read the standards of care document and had not taken an official position yet. But uh, Geller echoed fears about age discrimination if care is rationed according to the guidelines. Explicitly, it said that if there are not enough resources to provide for all patients, then younger patients are going to be prioritized. And now, even if the older person just needs like three days support, and the younger person is gravely ill, they're going to give it to the younger person. And I'm not saying that's wrong. The younger person needs support as well. But they're just kicking out older people because they're older, even if they're going to survive and benefit. And the second part is, if you read this thing, there are other places which discriminate against older people very clearly. When you file in your medical record with Queens, let's say, you file a medical directive and a pulse. That's the provider's order for life-sustaining therapy. And what that means is many older people don't want to suffer in pain at the end of their life, so they specify comfort measures only or limited interventions, you know, like do not resuscitate. So that you put in a document called Pulse and you give it to the 
medical providers, your GPS and the Queens and so forth. The policy says if you have one of those and it says comfort measures only, then you don't get a bed in the ICU. So I don't know what percentage of older people select comfort measures only. I suspect it's a very high proportion. Just on that, they can deny you a bed. And that, as far as I'm concerned, this policy is just profoundly wrong. Well, as we've seen during this pandemic, we get new information every day. Things just change so fast. And maybe at the time when this was being put together, we were operating on limited information. No, that's never good policy, even without the virus. If somebody says comfort measures only, but they're expected to survive, you don't deny them care. Comfort measures only, that part is for the end of life. If they're not near the end of life, that doesn't apply. With me, I, I think I'd put comfort measures only because if I get cancer or something very painful, that's what I want. But if I get a breakthrough infection and I need to be uh, in the hospital, even in a regular bed for like three days, that's not end of life. In fact, very specifically, I expect to get out. So you want I, more care? Yeah, I need those three days and then I'm out of there and I'm going to live till I'm 90. I mean, who knows? And when asked about the concerns raised by the advocacy groups, a spokesman for the State Health Department told us it is expected that the modified standards of care will be posted on its website later today. But it's not clear if those changes would address those concerns that were raised. Before we were in the grips of this pandemic, we were in the grips of a housing crisis, and that need for shelter hasn't gone away. Today on the segment we call The Long View, our analyst Neil Milner talks about housing and race. Good morning. Good morning. It's really about housing, race, and wealth, because um, here I'm less concerned about affordable housing itself and more concerned about how important housing, owning your own home is as a source of wealth and how different that is among different groups. So I looked at a few things about racial differences in homeowning in Hawaii, and then some recent research about black-white differences. Let me just start with a number that's a black-white difference, just to show you how much difference there is in, in wealth. The average white person's wealth in the United States is $181,000. The average black person's wealth, now wealth means not just income, it means other things that you own. The average black person's wealth is $17,000. Now most of that is about differences in whether you own a home or not, because if you think about it, you average folks out there, you're nut. Is, is the home you own. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you're, you may have been able to buy that home because your parents had some kind of wealth, I don't mean rich wealth, wealth that helped you with a down payment. You're in a cycle of being able to do that for generations. Other people can't do it. If you look at homeowning in Hawaii, there is an enormous difference 
uh, racially uh, about percentage of homeowning. 73% of Japanese Americans own their own homes. Something like 6% of Marshallese own their own homes. Now, part of that is a function of, of age. Um, the average Marshallese person here is only about 18. But still, if you look, there are clear differences among groups, uh, the kind that you would expect in, in terms of wealth, so that you have that kind of disparity. Yeah, I mean, that is startling. I mean, 17, you know, versus 180. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's almost impossible to imagine. Think about the fact, if you want to think about it, uh, what it means to simply have $17,000 in total assets, some of which aren't really very liquid. You know, and if you're living, if you're living, you know, paycheck to paycheck, which half of the people in Hawaii do, you get a really good sense about why under those circumstances, you're not going to be able to save for a down payment or how hard it is and how important it is to have some source of wealth in your family to get you started on, on owning a, a house. Yeah, and then when you think that, you know, the prices today, right, the million-dollar average home prices. Oh, yeah. We ha- and we have the lowest, well, among the lowest, probably the, 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 the bottom three in terms of states in regard to homeownership. So if you want to get another sense of how hard it is to live in Hawaii and what it means to have unaffordable housing, that's an important number. Low percentage-owned houses, low percentage don't have that as a source of wealth. It just means that you're pretty much always operating on the basis of very little money that you can never fall back on or or help your kids, which helps, of course, to explain why we have such high uh, number of people per capita in both rental and in in owning a home. Because if (laughs) if you can't give money to the next generation, you can give space which helps to explain why there'll be six cars in front of a person's, you know, in front of a small house. You know, in, in the Brookings Institute study that you looked at, um, I, one thing that jumped out at me was that you said that, uh, or this uh, report said that uh, even uh, black homes in white neighborhoods were valued less than white yeah. homes. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 one of the reasons that I, I'm trying to compare here is to, is to look at some of the differences that may not apply to Hawaii and some which, which may. One of the differences that doesn't apply is the legacy of slavery. That's not to say there wasn't oppression or discrimination here, but the legacy of, of, of slavery is so strong and so much reinforced by government policies in terms of um, making it very hard for black people to get money to get government loans because the argument was, Mixed neighborhoods aren't good because people don't like mixed neighborhoods, and you have that kind of legacy. The legacy here is different. I can't tell you exactly how because we don't have that kind of research that you have there. But there are other things that are that limit uh, African Americans that may apply here, one of which the most immediate has to do with the COVID relief loans. Black businesses were of the type that were less likely to qualify for COVID relief. Um, and so there was, there was an additional uh, thing going on there. But if you look at things like um, real estate agents discriminating against certain kinds of groups, 
There was a little bit of that here for sure. James Mishner talks about it uh, when he couldn't buy a house in Kahala because he was married to a Japanese woman. Um, you have things like uh, relationships with banks. One of the ways that you get credit and one of the ways that you get access to the housing market is to have a relationship with, the, with banks. The, the African-Americans are far less likely to be banked. They're more likely to be unbanked. That's actually a word I checked um, than, than white people are. So it means that the relationships that you have, the prior relationships that you have, a bank account, establishing credit, all of those sorts of things are less likely to be among blacks than, than among whites. They, those kinds of things may apply here. I say may. They're worth, they're worth looking into. Um, the other thing is you don't build a credit rating on the basis of paying rent. That's not what credit agencies look at. They look at other kinds of expenses. So if you're doing a, you know, you're a, a steady rent payer, that doesn't really show up on, on your credit. So all of these sorts of things essentially enhance the disparity of wealth. And once again, I'm saying it's not just having a place to live. It's what these other things do to you by not owning a house. Yeah, and, you know, here in Hawaii, again, you know, it's complicated. Uh, we do have uh, uh, Hawaiian homelands for Native Hawaiians, yeah, yes. uh, you know, uh, so, so that's, you know, uh, another different filter. I know we've had controversy in the past with banks. I think it was Bank of America. It was hullabaloo about, you know, the loans and Native yes. Native Hawaiians. Um, so, yeah, certainly there's some history there. Well, and the, the fundamental thing about Hawaiian homes is how few people can get them, right? I mean, not, not people like me, but how few people who are eligible to get them have been on the list for so long. Now, they're attempting to do certain things about it. They're attempting to now thinking about building rental units to make more housing accessible, which makes a lot of sense in some ways, but is not going to have much to do with this, uh, with building wealth. With you wealth. have a, you have a place to live. Thank God for that, right? Right, but yeah, but it's because you've got the housing crisis and you've got the the homeless crisis. That's right, and then you have an income disparity crisis and a wealth disparity crisis. Yeah, and you know, <laughs> it, it 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 is different, you know, uh, when you have a community, you know, like ours. Uh, and the different racial groups and, and the history. Yes. The, the, I mean, to me, one of the fundamental things to understand about Hawaii, living in Hawaii, that doesn't get enough attention is how much people hustle in the good way, how much people have to hustle to make do here. They like it so much. They, they, they live with their families. They have side jobs. We're not unique in that, but the extent to which we have to do that to live in paradise is pretty great. Yeah, that is the price of paradise. All right. Well, thank you so much, Neil. You're welcome. Take care. We have been talking with our political analyst and social scientist, Neil Milner. He's our contributing editor of our bi-weekly segment, The Long View.
Support for HPR comes from Hoku's Restaurant, featuring Chef Jonathan Mizukami. From culinary experiences across the globe, bringing a blend of French-influenced cuisine and local seasonal flavors. Reservations at kahalaresort.com. President Biden's sweeping vaccine mandate covers 100 million American workers, but some public health experts describe it as... Well-intentioned, poorly executed, almost no enforcement mechanism, and unlikely to move the needle. Big government mandates and smart public health decisions do the two meet in Biden's new COVID plan. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to enjoy the museum's galleries and outdoor courtyards until 9 p.m. on Friday and Saturday evenings. Admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org. Calling all chickens. Well, chickens are the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beach reporter Claire Caulfield on the line today. Good morning, Claire. Good morning. So I have noticed more chickens in my neighborhood, and we're not talking the feral kind. I'm talking the fancy pants chickens, the ones with the feathers down their legs. Yes, um, there does seem to be more feral chickens running around all the islands, um, but there is also an increase in backyard chickens, people who during the pandemic decided to get some pet chickens to um, raise eggs. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, do we have any good numbers as to how many people are doing this? No, there's no numbers. Um, The state doesn't track it or anything. So um, this is kind of anecdotal, but I talked to a bunch of backyard chicken farmers. There's a bunch of forums online. There's a very popular Facebook group for backyard chickens in Hawaii. And everyone I talked to said that, oh my gosh, so many more people are interested in raising chickens now. Um, The only real number I got was from someone who raises chickens to sell to backyard chicken producers um, on the big island. And he said that his business has jumped up 80% since the start of the pandemic. So this is a chicken breeder. Yes, a chicken breeder. Thank you. That's the (laughs) word I was looking for there. (laughs) Oh, gosh. So now people are breeding these backyard chickens, though, for the eggs. Yeah, so they're raising the chickens for the eggs. Um, So they have hens. Um, The regulations on how many chickens you can have really varies by where you live. Um, But for most of Honolulu, city and county of Honolulu, you can have two hens. Um, You're not supposed to have roosters because of noise complaints. Um, And so you're not so much breeding chickens in your backyard as you're keeping them as very useful pets for the eggs. Now, see, and I didn't realize that there was a restriction on the two hens. I mean, I know we hear a lot about the feral chickens and the and the roosters mm-hmm. that keep us up at night, uh, <laughs> but you know I think uh, uh, I'm sure people are going to wonder about you know the enforcement of rules. Uh, Yeah, so like any ordinance, um, the enforcement really relies on people reporting people who are in violation and then someone coming out and checking it out. Um, I didn't look so much into whether these rules are being enforced because all the backyard chicken producers 
pet owners that I talked to said that they actually asked their neighbors ahead of time if they minded them having some hens. Um, and a lot of them said that they're, even if their neighbors were a little skeptical at first, once they started bringing over fresh eggs, it all got patched up and everyone was happy. So, you know, I'm not saying that there haven't been instances where people are upset or their neighbors are having too many chickens that are, you know, causing problems. But it seems like one of those things where if you are, you know, meet your neighbors, talk with them, address any concerns that they may have. Um, it should be okay. <laughs> now, uh, these chickens, I mean, chickens have been around here in Hawaii for a long time. There's mm-hmm. tons of chickens on Kauai. I think after the hurricane, a lot of them got loose. Uh, but yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, they've been around for, for uh, quite a bit of time. Yeah, and so um, chickens were actually one of the animals that came over with the very first Polynesian explorers. And so there's a really strong history here in Hawaii, um, a strong cultural tradition, a strong food culinary tradition as well. Um, But yeah, these concerns about feral chickens is something that, you know, my email inbox has seen this morning. People worried that if, you know, random people are bringing chickens into their backyards and then the chickens get out or they're irresponsible in some way, it could lead to a growth in the feral chicken population which is, of course, a possibility if you have irresponsible people handling these animals irresponsibly. And you talk to a number of people, you know, who are raising chickens, and they want to actually change the restriction, right, to allow more than just two chickens. Yeah, so there was a woman I spoke with who said that, you know, having only two hens really isn't enough to provide eggs for a family. That's a big misconception is that, you know, a chicken lays an egg every single day. That is not at all the case. And so there are some conversations about, well, if we really want this to be about, you know, increasing our food security, homegrown food, um, then some people are pushing for, you know, maybe people could have six chickens in their backyard. Um, so that's there's a growing conversation around that. Yeah, I have lots of uh, feathers to ruffle over this one. <laughs> <laughs> but thanks so much, Claire. Thanks for your time. Have a good one. All righty. That was reporter Claire Caldfield with today's Reality Check. To read her story about raising chickens during the pandemic, visit civilv.org. So are you inspired to start keeping your own chickens? Well, you're in good company. Chickens were likely first domesticated about 8,000 years ago from red jungle fowl. Polynesians brought the same red jungle fowl, also known as the moa, to Hawaii. And you can still find some of these birds here today. We've got their call thanks to the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. University of Hawaii Hilo professor Patrick Hart has your Manu Minute. Moa, or red jungle fowl, were the first birds introduced to Hawaii by humans. As they were brought by Polynesian voyagers to the Hawaiian Islands close to a thousand years ago, Moa look a lot like modern-day chickens, and recent research has shown that common chickens were domesticated from red jungle fowl over 8,000 years ago in Asia. Moa are a bit smaller than most other chickens, and the males have a classic red, black, and green color pattern in their plumage whereas regular chickens come in all sorts of color combinations. Moa can also be distinguished by their call. The last syllable in the rooster's four-syllable cock-a-doodle-doo call is much shorter in the moa than the domestic chicken. Here's the call of the moa. 
and here is the call of the domestic chicken. Moa were once common on all the Hawaiian islands, but are now mainly found in the dense upland rainforests of Kauai, where they feed on leaves, fruits, and insects in the leaf litter, and spread the seeds of a variety of native and non-native plants. Even on Kauai, they've now interbred with domestic chickens to such an extent that they're often hard to tell apart, especially after hurricanes Eva and Iniki led to lots of domestic chickens escaping into the wild. A recent genetic study showed that while some birds have retained many of the genes of their Polynesian ancestors, most birds that people mistake for moa are actually just domestic chickens. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Biology Department. Support for Manu Minute comes from Ken and Patty Kupchak for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, devoted to protecting endangered birds and plants on Hawaii Island. More about helping at friendsofhakalauforest.org. are underway to teach computers to understand Olelo Hawaii or the Hawaiian language. Using artificial intelligence technology could unlock access to a great number of archival materials. But some worry about tech companies in control, an area of concern that they call data sovereignty. HPR's Ku'uvehirishi joins us this morning. Hi. Good morning, Catherine. This idea of, of using technology to advance Olelo Hawaii's is nothing new. Uh, there are smartphone apps uh, we've heard of, like Duolingo, uh, online courses to learn Olelo Hawaii, and of course, something I use on a daily basis, the Hawaiian Language Dictionary being uh, available online at vehevehe.org. And so this step into artificial intelligence technology or machine learning, where we teach computers to recognize Hawaiian words, uh, it has endless possibilities in terms of applications. So one example uh, that I touched on is voice-to-text or uh, speech recognition technology, right? So when you say something, the computer can listen to it, understand it, and actually text it or, you know, provide the text documentation for that or transcription. Uh, Hawaiian language researchers at UH Hilo have this archive, for example, of 525 hours of of recordings of Manaleo or native speakers from the 1970s and 80s. They've been doing the transcription work laboriously. A person that understands Hawaiian will listen and go ahead and transcribe. They have been able to transcribe about 70 hours <laughs> of the 525, but using AI technology would allow them to automate that process, right? So you get a rough draft of the trans of the audio that you can then kind of fine tune with the actual um, speaker going through that transcription. And so a Hawaiian neuroscientist, O.E.V. Parker-Jones, uh, a former Hawaiian language immersion student and now research fellow at Oxford, uh, says the challenge in building these sort of computer applications, especially for indigenous languages uh, like Hawaiian, is that there's a need for data. And when you, uh, for example, the number of speakers of Hawaiian language is relatively smaller compared to 
English say, for example, right, English speakers. And so finding that data, having something to feed the computer to teach it Hawaiian language is where, you know, one of the biggest challenges to creating these programs. Uh, so he says, for example, he can take probably a hun- hundreds of hours um, of this of these recordings and come up with a, a decent application to automate transcription. But in similar English language programs are going uh, using upwards of hundreds of thousands of, of hours of audio, if not millions. And so figuring out how to find that data, create that data, and teach the computer uh, Hawaiian, and that's part of the challenge. Uh, we spoke to Kioni Mahelona, this Kauai-born techie, who's now the chief technology officer for Tehiku Media. They're a Maori uh, tech company that's been working on AI technology. Uh, he says, you know, one of the most important considerations for indigenous communities when it comes to using AI technology is this idea of, of data sovereignty, of being able uh, to have control over that data and then ensure that the benefits, whether economic or otherwise, are going to come back to the community. Where we need the future to be is that Maori and Hawaiians have sovereignty over any machine learning or artificial intelligence that has to, you know, that deals with our data and our people and our culture and any platform that that sort of looks after or houses our data. And so one example I want to talk about is, is Duolingo, right? Because you can learn Olalohava'i on Duolingo. My question to Duolingo is, do any profits that are made from people paying a subscription and learning Olelo Hawaii actually come back to the Hawaiians? I'm sure Olelo Hawaii is, is like, you know, a drop in the bucket, right? But that drop is actually a lot for Hawaiians, right? When you look at poverty, right? An extra million dollars a year for Olelo Hawaii research, that's a lot of money, right? So Tehiku Media has been sort of at the forefront of indigenous uh, AI technology. Uh, They were the first to build automatic speech recognition technology uh, for an indigenous language. And that code and the the program and the data that went into that uh, is something that big big tech companies were approaching them about. And so Tehiku originally started, gosh, 30, 40 years ago as a radio station. And they had all these recordings in Te Reo Māori uh, that they were able to use as data to build these platforms, right? And so when, say, for example, Google Translate wants to come in and say, hey, can we use that data to build a better, you know, translation technology for our website, Tehiku is one to say, nope, not right now. This is something that we want to make sure our community can benefit from. Um, and so that's part of the conversation right now. Right. So data sovereignty, it's like it's, it's uh, intellectual property. Right. Essentially. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and the idea that you can re- maintain that control over that data and over uh, what comes out of the use of that data. And so that's very much a part of the conversation for Native Hawaiians as they go ahead and uh, enter this new realm of AI technology. Yeah, so this is fledgling stuff. <laughs> I like it, I'm interested yeah. in it. I'd like to see the the outcomes of it, but yeah, kind of have that crux of data sovereignty built in as well. Uh, fascinating, all right. Well, thank you so much, Kuvehi. Mahalo. That was HPR reporter Kuvehi Reishi. Check out more of her stories on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org.
Support for HPR comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older, with virtual courses designed to engage the mind and enrich lives. Classes begin September 20th. More by searching Osher Hawaii. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bite Mark Cafe, we'll catch up with EV charging company Volta and find out what it was like to issue an IPO on the New York Stock Exchange. With so few Hawaii companies getting listed on Wall Street, we'll find out about Volta's pathway to initial public offering and what this means for the future. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from ProService Hawaii, offering advice to employers on managing business challenges due to the coronavirus. More at proservice.com slash COVID help or by calling 808-207-7634. recently announced that two beaches on Oahu's North Shore will have their original names restored. What we know as Pounders will be Pahumoa, and Laie Beach Park is now Laie Lohe Lohe. This follows the erection of a sign bearing the name Hunananiho at the entrance of what has been officially known as Waimanalo Bay Beach Park. Some locals call the area Sherwoods. The Conversations Russell Subiano was curious about the meaning behind uh, this original name and the history of that area there. He called up Waimanalo native Kalani Kalima to get the story. Can you share with our listeners the meaning of the name? So going off of Pounders Beach and everything else, mm-hmm. we met with Ariel Kupunasai Bridges, who had shared with us the original name, which was Pahumoa, named after the Konohiki of that area, which was his uh, grandfather. And Laie Lohe Lohe, as we all know the Mo'olelo, or for those that don't know the Mo'olelo, Laie Lohe Lohe or Laie Kawaii is made famous in song and in chant and is really peely to that area. So I had helped out to draft that that resolution to change the name. I also helped to draft a resolution to uh, change the name from Sherwoods to Hunana Niho. And the thing about that is that when we look at the, the history of the area, and how it was taken, you know, it was once crown lands, and then a portion was taken out so it could be given for bellows, and then the eventual return to, to become a state park, and from the state, it went over to become a city park. Now, when it was a state and it was transitioning, that is when they ended up using an archaeologist to look it up, to, to find out what's going on, and that is when he found a lot of burials a lot of EV. So he had actually put it on top of a list of historic places, and we utilized that in order to protect the area. I remember in 2019, the city attempted to start construction of a new athletic field there at Hunananiho, a decision that was protested by a large portion of the community and ultimately scrapped last year. Can you remind our listeners why those community members felt it was important to prevent that area from de- being developed in that way. I know Evie Kupuna was a big reason. Is there any idea how many EVR are out there? And is in addition to being a burial site, 
Were there other reasons why the community wanted to keep it preserved the way it is? Well, according to the archaeological finds, yeah, Waimanalo is, has some of the earliest habitation sites in all of Hawaii. And they got a lot of artifacts that date back to the Marquesas to Nukuhiva. And there's no, no place else in Hawaii that has those artifacts. So that goes to the earliest of migrations. And, you know, when, when we look at human migration in general, Hawaii, Aotearoa, Iceland were the very fringes, the very last areas to be um, migrated to. So we, we believe that not only did that showcase how important this is for us, all of Hawaii, and especially the Kanaka Maoli and the Kanaka Oivi of the area, it also had the oldest graveyards. And that is what we, we utilize to try and protect the area. Not not just because of the EV, but also the cult, the historical and cultural sites that, that was there, that is still there. We understand the history, that this was a part of the Bellows Complex, and that the military had bulldozed a long-standing graveyard. But what they did was they ended up spreading the graveyard even further and making it even even larger. So more so, we felt it important to try and protect whatever was left over. What are the community's plans to protect the area? Is it just to kind of leave it as it is, or are there plans down the road to maybe maybe restore some of the history there? You know, the, the great part was going back to the community and having these community meetings that everybody was, um, you know, we, we tried to invite everybody by, um, you know, social media, putting up flyers at Shimas and other places and just trying to spread the word. And for those that came, they were able to um, pretty much set up what are some of the things that that they can foresee would be in the best interest of all people, the community, the Kanaka, and the general public. So we had showcased those to the mayor and everybody else. You know, this is what the community wants. This is how it, they want to see us moving forward. And I believe those those meetings went pretty well. So right now, we have to change the name. Yeah, everybody knew it as Waimanalo Bay Beach Park. Mm-hmm. A lot of people remembered the old nickname, which is Sherwoods, which stood for Sherwood Forest. As everybody knows, the Namo'olelo of Robin Hood, somebody who would steal from the rich and give to the poor. Uh, the reason why they ended up utilizing that was because in the 70s, when the Robin Hood TV show was popular, it was also a place where, you know, people would steal and, you know, do, do the nefarious things in the forest. So in order to change that, yeah, to change the narrative, in order to change it into a positive, it's kind of like Nanakuli. If you look at the Mo'olelo of Nanakuli and what the community wanted to do in creating Nanai Kapono, we wanted to do the same thing. We wanted to take something that was a negative and change it into a positive so that we can bring more life, more ola into the area. I love that idea. And I, I love that these beaches are getting their their names restored. And can you elaborate more on the process that, that you went through, the community went through to be able to restore the original place names? Did you have to file some paperwork? Were there hearings that had to happen? So first, we went back 
you know, we had met amongst ourselves, the, the community of Waimanalo, and anybody who had wanted to be a part of this movement to protect the area. And, you know, we had done our own research, and we had found out that Waimanalo, and we've, there's, there's many of us that have known this for years, Waimanalo has their own Pu'uhonua. Yeah, so a Pu'uhonua is someplace that is sanctified by not only the kahu, or, or the or the ones that that ensure the sanctity of the place is is followed. The protocols is followed. So you need a kahu and you need easy. Yeah. So hunana niho, our our puuhonua. When we looked at Waimanalo, and we looked at the the area that we were in, knowing that there are a lot of easy over there, knowing that there was a resurgence of understanding that we had, um, the people had stepped forward to be the kahu. So if you, if you look at that and you understand that Honolulu, you know, on, on Oahu, there's six moku. And back in the 1800s, they had changed the moku of Kona to Honolulu. But when you look at the, when you look at the history and understand that Honolulu was actually named after an ili, and a Konohiki of that area. It wasn't a name for the whole place. Right. It used to be cold. And so they changed the narrative. They changed the name to make it fitting for that area. And we felt that utilizing research, utilizing the teachings of our kupuna, we looked at utilizing the name Hunana Niho. And what does that mean? You know, there's different, different researchers that went out and found Haununa Niho, but I, I really like the explanation from Humuhula Frank Kawai Hewitt, who had shared with us that to Hunana Niho, it means to lay secret as something that is so sacred, something that is so personal as one's teeth. So Niho means teeth. So when we, um, you know, we met with the larger public, we talked to everyone and, and we wrote down all of the notes. We got all of that. All of the breakout sessions and everything else, we wrote down everybody's mana'o. And when we talked to the former mayor, Caldwell, he finally understood what we were saying. You know, we were saying all this time that this is someplace that is sacred. It's the earliest habitation sites. It's the earliest graveyard in all of Hawaii. So for people, for Americans who celebrate the coming of the pilgrims and they celebrate, they celebrate the Plymouth Rock, this is our Plymouth Rock. For Christians that talk about Kinohi or the Genesis, this is our Genesis. We were Maoli people throughout the Pacific. And when we came to Hawaii, that's when we was Pili to this Aina. So with all of that understanding, we moved forward to share this. And we, we created a resolution last year that didn't go forward. From our, our prior council member, Utaika Anderson, he stopped that process from going forward. But we were blessed with Councilwoman Esther Kia'aina and others to look at this process and to see the importance of it going forward. From what I read, the council voted unanimously to rename the park, which I think is, is very symbolic of a renewed understanding of cultural identity. And, and I feel like these renaming of the beaches are, are it's kind of a part of a broader restoration of our culture. What would you say to someone who 
doesn't understand why it's important to local communities that names are getting replaced or restored with their traditional place name. What would you say to these people who don't quite understand? All we can do is share what we've, the aloha that we have for this aina. And like you had shared, restore the names. You know, if we look at names of places, you'll understand process that happened to it. Now, all we have to do is share with people the history prior to that. Because I'm, I'm good with having all of those names, but starting with original names. Because all of those different names share a portion of who came in. You know, in the 40s, had these people came over here, he was surfing over here, and the sets were so long. And it remind him of, reminded him of the story of China, the wall, Great Wall of China. Mm-hmm. And that is how he called it China Walls. Hey, that's a great story. No different than naming your child. Your child should understand what is the context, what is the background, so that when, when they speak about themselves and share their name, they can share it with pride because they have the knowledge of it. And so when we're looking at today's names, nicknames, the key is to just be open-minded and just know. Not all knowledge is, is received in one source. Once you can, you can hold that dear, then you can humble yourself in knowing that even though you may know a lot, you may not know it all. And it, it allows us to be open, to learn from other sources, to share mana'o with others so that we can get a better understanding and appreciation. And I, I believe that's what's going on in, the, in city council is that hey, they're getting it. And that's awesome. They're listening to to the people, and that's awesome. You know, let us continue to build this relationship so that it can be beneficial for everybody. Thank you so much for your time, Kalani. I appreciate it. Mahalo nui. Uh, the stories of place names. Love it. That was Kalani Kalima talking with HPR's Russell Subiono about the meaning and history behind Hunana Niho, the original name restored to what the city once called Waimanalo Bay Beach Park, and locals knew as Sherwoods. Waimanalo, no other place to be. Waimanalo, loved by all who come to see. Kuvahipana, kukula Well, we have to go now, but up tomorrow we will be talking about vaccine mandates. What do you think? Call or talk back line 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation, HPR, or tweet us at HI Conversation. Email works too, talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And want to listen back to something you heard? Find our archive shows online. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.